0: Connecting the dots of some seemingly irrational ideas can create magic for brands. In this episode, I talk to the Vice Chairman of Ogilvy UK, Rory Sutherland, who's the author of several books including Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. He shares how behavioural science can help marketers and agencies to reframe the questions they ask about customers.
1: My argument is very simply that data tells you the what, but you need behavioural science to tell you the why. And without the why, the what is actually, you know, sometimes not very valuable and sometimes downright dangerous,
0: in fact. We also talk about how agencies and brands can transform how they think about brand problems.
1: And that's what I mean about, you know, that everywhere, everywhere you have a consumer interaction, whether it's in advertising or in customer service or experience, there's the opportunity for that kind of just astonishing magic.
0: Please share and subscribe to The Lead Creative wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us to bring you amazing guests, share their insights and spread the word. Enjoy the show. Welcome the lead creative podcast where we talk to creative industry leaders influencers and brands we discuss the strategies that influence brand thinking and shape industries thought leaders and heads of agencies let us in on some of their thinking and insights i'm your host Zimtati. enjoy the show and please share and subscribe Rory, thank you very much for making the time to talk to us between your travels Um, and, yeah, you've been doing these things quite a lot. I mean, I've been seeing you on LinkedIn of late, communicating quite a lot, keeping people informed about what you're doing. How are things going for you?
1: Yes, I mean, uh, I think it will always be a struggle. It will always be difficult just to get people to accept what, what I'm not suggesting, and, you know, occasionally, people, occasionally people, people sort of say, are you, you know, opposed to rationality? No, I'm not, okay? Um, fairly obviously, there are many, many good things, nearly all of engineering, perhaps 30% of medicine, not 100% of medicine, medical science by any means, which we can largely attribute to rational, incremental, sequential progress. What I'm saying, and it will always be a difficult message, is that that's fine and good and dandy, but we have to leave uh, uh, we have to leave room for what you might call both creativity, uh, luck, and something which is halfway in between, which is designing for luck. In other words, saying, we don't entirely know how to succeed here, but we're going to design an experimental programme, a kind of evolutionary experimental programme, which will allow us to make progress over time. In other words, um, if, if you abandon the idea that in advance of every problem, there's a single right answer... And you accept the fact that the future has a large amount of unknowability to it. But you also accept the fact that actually a large part of innovation, uh, let's take product innovation, for example, a large part of product innovation isn't really wanted in advance. So you can't ask people what they want. Um, As Henry Ford has said, although it's not entirely clear he ever said that, Steve Jobs certainly did say it, okay, um, it's not it's not our job to give the consumer what they want. It's our job to give the consumer something which, having experienced it, they can't imagine life without it. and that's different. and I think we we simply have to accept the fact that the role that what you might call inductive sequential logic plays in progress and plays in business success will always be a really, really important role, but it can't be the only game in town.
0: Can you recall the earliest memory that you have of interacting with advertising in any way and what impact Uh, that had on you? uh, Yeah, very easily, actually.
1: Um, When I was a kid... Now, I was lucky enough to be born in 1965, which meant that I was kind of 10, 11, 12, 13 years old in what was certainly a golden age of British print advertising. Uh, In particular, I think the work of, well, not only CDP actually, the work of BMP and others, but certainly the work of of, of, uh, CDP and print um, uh, was magnificent. And my brother and I, my brother's 18 months older than me, we used to fight for the Sunday Times color supplement every week. And really what we were fighting for was the chance to read the ads not so much the articles, but actually the ads, because the best of the ads were utterly brilliant. And it was also a golden age of TV advertising, which I very, you know, I enjoyed TV advertising as well. Um, But um, uh, you would have had to be nuts really, I think, to grow up in that age, not to consider a career in advertising because the very best of it was just so incredibly good. I'm also, you know, I'm also a bit of a nerd, so I'm not hostile to digital advertising. I just think it's overblown and I think it doesn't really fully deliver on its promise yet. Um despite the fact that everybody can contrive figures suggesting that it does. Um but um uh, yeah, I, I I actually when I was at school, um we had a kind of careers officer and I think the two jobs that came out top when we did some psychographic test for me were uh, barrister or advertising. Uh, th- those were the two things that came top. I can't remember what the third one was. Mm. Third one might now, have been some real wild card, like fireman or something. I can't, I can't, but um, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad a psychographic test, if that was yeah. what it predicted, perhaps.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward to today, um, we've now come to a time when we've evolved so much as humans, where to a point we ignore advertising. We also stream our content on platforms that have little to zero advertising. So we, we avoid advertising as much as possible today. How can brands still stand out, win consumer attention in a meaningful way and build real connections in this time when we ignore advertising so much?
1: Well, there's one thing I've been questioning recently, which is that uh, the modern trend in advertising is to do two things which make perfect sense uh, in isolation, uh, but which in combination don't make much sense at all. And that's to combine... uh, Ever better targeting, and we can have a whole debate about that by the way, which is if you um if you target mathematically, are you as an automatic consequence of that, devoting too much attention to the bottom of the funnel? right. Because activity close to the bottom of the funnel, the bottom of the funnel is really, really important. This is this is the thing I've got to continually say. Just because I say that something's over, you know, overrated or, um, uh, shall we say, you know, overweighted, doesn't mean I think it's bad. I'm merely saying it's not the only game in town. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and it, it, it's an ever-present problem, by the way, in the modern world, which is if you criticise someone's means they tend to take it personally or i mean for example there are aspects of both the uh, you know uh both camp i suppose campaigns for diversity and inclusion and i occasionally criticize them not because i think the, the intention is wrong but because i think they're they're counterproductive or maybe ineffective but it's very dangerous in the modern world to criticize anything because it's taken personally and you're yes. assumed to be kind of essentially <laughs> you know, denigrating their entire you know someone's entire existence okay mm-hmm. you know if i th- if i think that certain behaviors that are designed to foster inclusion or diversity are ineffectual when I mm. criticise them, it's criticising the, the means, not the ends. That's all I'm saying. And in this case, when I criticise the, the, the focus on the bottom of the funnel, what I'm not saying is that conversion is unimportant. In fact, it's probably the first thing you need to get right. I'm merely saying that's not the only game in town. OK. And, um, uh, you know, one of my mantras also is the opposite of a good idea is another good idea. It's not originally me who said that. I. I it was actually a conversation, fan, believe it or not, it's a conversation between Einstein and Niels Bohr where they agreed the same thing. They said in mm. trivial discussions, in trivial things, yes. the opposite yeah. of a good idea is wrong. But in yeah. really, really big things, the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. Um, mm, that makes and sense, I, yeah. it, And, and we, we do have a very strange kind of modern culture where uh, people bizarrely, although they're better educated and should be more sophisticated and nuanced, people seem to have an ever greater urge to see things in kind of black and white terms. So conversion is really important. What I'm saying is the two things I'm saying that make sense in isolation that don't necessarily make sense in combination are getting better and better at knowing who your customers, both real and potential, are. Very good idea. No one's Mm. criticising that. Secondly, reaching customers really, really cheaply. (laughs) Okay. Now, that's a good idea, too, in many cases. If you want to reach a large number of people, reaching them in an inexpensive uh, mass medium where with a low price per eyeball can be a really good idea. But doing both those things together is kind of dumb. Okay. The reason in direct marketing we always had to know who our customers were is because direct mail is very, very impactful, but it's very, very expensive. OK, so, you know, in a good piece of direct mail, you could get a response rate of three, four, five, seven, 10 percent. OK, now those are monumental response rates when compared to email marketing response rates or banner response rates. OK, they're orders of magnitude higher. Yes. And the reason the reason it paid to use direct mail is is that direct mail um, was very, very impactful. But part of the reason it was impactful is that it was expensive, You know, and deep down, I think the consumer thought, well, someone has actually spent a pound writing to me about this. I probably should pay it at least 30 seconds attention. Yeah. We don't think that about a banner, do we? We don't think, gosh, I think of all the effort that went into bringing me that banner at the bottom of the page. I really ought to give it a bit of thought. I mean, there are other reasons. And with direct mail, I mean, just, you know, our, our automatic reaction to mail is that maybe this is something I need to respond to. Um, but, but, the, but the point I'm making is that the combination of targeting and cheap media which seems like two good things actually combines to actually do something which is actually a bit dumb if you know exactly who your customers are you shouldn't be reaching them in low impact low conversion media forms yes. you should be you know, let, let's okay I'll, I'll put it in very simple terms Okay, if you're running a car dealership if someone comes in who's just a bit of a tire kicker, right? You might just keep an eye on them and say, I'm here when you know, I'm here whenever you need me. Um yes. uh, you know, l- you know, lo- lovely car, the new Lexus so-and-so, lovely car. Um if, if you want to talk to me about finance or anything else, just come and have a word. But if someone comes in and says, I'm I'm really interested in buying the new Lexus or Audi or whatever it is, okay? You don't just go, Yeah, well, I'm here when you need me, okay? You say, right, okay, let's talk. Would you like a test drive? Now, test drive is really expensive, okay? You know, it's, okay, if you factor in your time sitting in the passenger seat, and, you know, you know, it's, you know, you'd probably have to put a reasonable price of 50, 100 pounds on a test drive, but it's worth it because there's a 25% chance of selling that car, okay? You wouldn't offer a test drive to some random kid who walked in off the streets, necessarily, okay? Or you wouldn't be eager to, and so there's a fundamental rule of communication that seems to be broken. It's okay, nobody would invite someone to their wedding by email. Well, I, I don't know, maybe someone like Zuckerberg or some geek would, but you know, you put it in the post, you, you know. If you really want to get someone's attention, you send it by FedEx or UPS. Okay. And there's a fundamentally broken rule here which is, you know, the closer I get to, you know, um uh, to purchase Um, the more you spend money on me. Yes. In a sense. And, you know, I mean, maybe that's an instinctive thing we understand. But this weird business of of using digital means and data to identify your customers ever more tightly and then using digital media to reach them, okay, two totally sensible things in isolation. The combination to me seems to be inherently contradictory Mm. or self-defeating. Yeah.
0: There's something else that, you, that you, you, you talk about, which I'd like us to unpack here, coming back to this idea of knowing your customer and knowing your customer well, because one of the things that we tend to, that we tend to refer back to, and I would say I'm guilty of this because I work more in the digital marketing space, is data. Um, data and analytics, which which in a way says we know our customer better, and you argue that sometimes we don't use that effectively
1: so I mean let me give an example of this, okay, which is which is just one of my kind of anecdotes, which is uh, this is by the way, I love data, and also I'll also say something this is this is again, I'm being kind of contradictory. behavioral data, what people actually buy in a sense contains much more truth and information of value than what people claim to buy or what people claim to do okay because we don't fully understand our own um uh if you like instinctive drivers as humans you know so what we will do when asked why did you do this or will you do this our actual response is actually not an accurate response we maybe just Trying to look polite, trying to look rational, trying to look sensible. But when we actually buy something, there's a truth contained in that, which yeah. is we actually sacrificed real money in exchange for that thing. If we then buy that thing repeatedly, there's a really valuable bit of information in there, which is I might be onto a successful product, which once experienced creates a natural convert. Okay, so totally, totally keen on data. However, This is why I think data plus behavioural science is so important, because data provides the what, but it doesn't really provide the why. Yeah. Okay? And actually, you can get the why very, very wrong if you're not careful. Because really robust, good, reliable, fantastic data, okay, will tell you a story. Well, actually, but the story it tells depends on the interpretation, and the interpretation... Probably depends on something psychological, and the example I always give, okay, is let's imagine your Starbucks, okay, or a large coffee chain, okay, and at the moment you close at five, and to be honest, you don't sell that much coffee between four thirty and five, all right. So someone says, is it worth opening that Starbucks? I mean, there's some really weird Starbucks. There's a Starbucks I always called the world's laziest Starbucks, which is on Platform 1 of Victoria Station. And it, like, closes at 7 o'clock. You've got this prime real estate. What the hell are you thinking? You know, closing hell, OK. Mm. But anyway, you look at the data and you say, well, there's no point in opening any later because, look, in the last half hour we're open already. We don't sell very much coffee, OK? And so, you know, projecting that downwards, it looks like demand for coffee really tails off after 6pm or 5pm, Okay, And by the way, that might be true. But there's another story, which is an interesting one psychologically, which is people hate drinking coffee in a place which is about to close, Okay, And secondly, that because the staff want to go home early, they consciously or unconsciously deliberately um, show signs of shutting up half an hour before the store actually closes to discourage more customers from coming in. And if yeah, you talk so they to wind people, down almost. Well, well, if you talk to people who work in coffee shops, it's, this mm. is known as getting the mop out. OK. okay. And you <laughs> get the mop out. Because you want to basically knock off as soon after closing time as you possibly can. The last thing you want is people coming in in the last two minutes, because then you'll have to remop the floor. You'll have to wipe down the nozzle on the espresso machine. You'll have to clean the toilets again. OK, right. So. What you try and do is create very few customers in the last half hour, and you get the ones you have to bugger off. And basically, someone who worked in a coffee shop said, it's called getting the mop out. You can get the mop out. That basically stops anyone else coming in and basically says to your existing customers, okay, piss off now, right? <laughs> but they said, all you have to do effectively is say, you, 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 you put one chair upside down on top of a table or upside down on top of another chair, and nobody comes in. The second you do that now, so it may be that actually if you did open that coffee shop till 10 and you paid the staff to stay till 10, you'd actually do a thriving business uh, until 9.30. Or Mm. if you wanted to, you could say, look, we'll pay you until 10.30 for your cleaning up. But the deal is, guys, OK, you don't do any mopping, okay, until the store's actually closed. So it's half anecdotal, it's actually kind of true, but it's an example where you could read the data. If your grasp of psychology was wrong, you could read the data and very, very confidently derive a conclusion from it. Now, that conclusion might be right, but a psychologist or someone, or indeed a creative person, by the way, just generally, you know, might draw a completely different conclusion from the same data. Because data data doesn't really give you answers; it just gives you. um, I would I would argue it just gives you avenues of inquiry. It's a bit like police work, you know. Mm. That you know, by and large, you know, an awful lot of, of data you you would acquire in a police investigation. It doesn't actually say that's the guilty party. It says this is worth this is this is an avenue worth exploring. And my argument is very simply that data tells you the what, but you need behavioral science to tell you the why. And without the why, the what is actually, you know, sometimes not very valuable and sometimes downright
0: dangerous, in fact. If you're enjoying the Lead Creative, please share this episode with your network and hit follow or subscribe. Enjoy the show. So on to a bit of a a longish question based on um, some observations and things that have been happening in recent times. Um, Inflation is at a 40-year high, and there's an article I read that that when this happened, there was a domino effect where recessions followed, money supply was reduced, um, rates, interest rates were raised, consumers spent less, unemployment rose. Now, with that lens in mind, I'd like to come to something that you talk about quite a lot, which is that marketers should ask better questions. And this is something that you've been, you've been talking about a lot in recent times. Now, through this lens of this, these, this domino effect that happens as a result of inflation, how can marketers within brands and agencies ask better and better quality questions?
1: I'd say something very, very perverse, Okay. Uh, which is that we've actually been having absolutely massive inflation uh, for the last 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and that the only reason we haven't noticed is we don't include property prices in the inflation figures. Okay, Now, if I were a marketer and an economist simultaneously Hmm. one of the things that would really piss me off and it would piss me off in britain it would piss me off in the us it would piss me off in south africa okay is that human ingenuity in most market segments has done an incredible job looked at over 20 years of getting people better stuff at a lower price you look at airlines okay or you look at televisions right Okay, the television I had as a child was more expensive than the one I have now. And it was a piece of shit compared to my current television. You know, it was black. Well, (laughs) my father had black and white TVs. Don't ask me why, you know, but it was rubbish. Okay, and even really expensive colour TVs were really, really expensive. And they were rubbish. People's faces were pink. Okay, and they were a massive great box that sat in the room. Uh, When I was a a student, okay, in 1987, it never occurred to me that I would necessarily go to the United States ever in my life, because that's how expensive travel was, okay? Clothes, now I've got to say this, I'm 57, because not all you young people appreciate this, but when my parents bought my school uniform, It was a significant real expense. So, you know, okay, the shoes were probably 20-something pounds, okay? But that was 20-something pounds in 1977, which is getting on for like 100 quid in modern money, okay? Mm. So capitalism has done this incredible job, okay, of providing people with better shit for less, which should have meant people have ended up with a load of extra discretionary income to spend on different things. Instead, rising property prices, which is just a Ponzi scheme benefiting the elderly, have mopped up nearly all of those gains. So so, so I think there was huge inflation. It just happened to be property inflation and it didn't appear in the figures. Mm. And if I look at my current, when I moved to London, okay, you know I, I i wouldn't have i couldn't have afforded to fly i did, i first flew to the United States because my brother lived there in nineteen ninety four and I could only just afford to do it okay um i i um uh, i i again in nineteen eighty eight it didn't occur to me when I was working that i'd ever go all right i didn't I didn't assume that i'd ever go but but actually my rent wasn't that big a part of my earnings now if I look at my current younger staff once they've paid tax. Of the money that's left over, at least 50% goes in accommodation and transport costs. This is true. Now, so one of the questions I ask, okay, is how do we get... Okay, so we talk about flexible working. (laughs) One of the things I've said is, look, if I'm Unilever, right, okay, if I'm, you know, Mondelez, okay, if I'm P&G, right, if I'm Samsung, I'm in favour of anything which gives consumers more discretionary income. And if by working from home some of the time they have fewer commuting costs or if they move slightly further away from their place of work so they can afford cheaper accommodation, which means their mortgage costs go down, that's more money going back into the productive economy. Now, because economists treat the property market like it's any other market and they just go rising property prices, it's supply and demand plus consumer preference property isn't consumer preference you don't have any choice about having somewhere to live okay well i mean i suppose you could buy a motor home that would be i mean yeah. that, that um, you know my father actually debated that he said look if london property prices continue to rise the best thing you can do is just buy an american motorhome and find a guy with a garage and go and park it in. you know park it in london you know a houseboat would be the other the other solution but i mean you don't have any choice but, but to, you know, but have a place to live. So you had this awful thing, which was a speculative kind of boom market, which was all about kind of in, uh, what you might call exchange value or investment value. Dominated the pricing of property so that its use value, um, uh, you know, became ludicrous. Okay. Mm. Yeah. And so there's a bit of me which goes, if this causes a property price crash, okay, it'll be painful at first. It'll be disproportionately painful for people who've only recently bought property. Maybe we'll see buy-to-let landlords giving up and sell and actually putting their properties on the market, which will further depress prices. But I would argue that this failure to solve the property, uh, 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 the cost of, you know, that basic... I mean... What's weird, OK, is that when property prices went up, the news would report it as a good news story. Nobody reports rising bread prices as a good story because it's great news to people who've just bought a loaf of bread. Mm. Okay? Yeah. I, yeah. And so so a bit of me, if you know, if if I looked at the wider picture, the thing that would really piss me off if I were anybody working in what you might call consumer capitalism is that all these gains by making things cheaper and better have just been sucked up by a combination of property owners and financial lenders effectively getting people into deeper and deeper debt that it hasn't really, you know, the, the gratitude we should be getting. you know, I mean, I, you know, when I look at, I can, i give you an example, you know, if you, uh, it, and by the way, I don't think, I think people aged your age will be much, much angrier about this, but you don't know what it used to be like. <laughs> Yes, yeah, we we don't have reference
0: of a different time.
1: You you think this shit's always been this shit. No, it hasn't always been this shit, you know. um, uh, It genuinely hasn't always been this bad. And, you know, I I look at it and I go, okay, you know, everything, meals out, you know, um, everything was more expensive and worse, okay, 30 years ago. I don't, you, you know, you've got to be my age to really to see that kind of chronological comparison. And so you have, actually, people keep talking about failures of capitalism, okay? Actually, sorry guys, but it's done a cracking job, okay? You know, I mean, uh, one of, okay, one of my favorite brands, okay? Let, let me give you a very simple story. Do you have TK Maxx in South Africa? TK Max. T.J. Maxx I- in the United States, okay. But it's basically sort of unsold, quite often, designer clothes. Sold Mighty. at a massive discount. Now, okay. Now this is okay. This is probably, you know, this will still be the case in South Africa. But in the UK, when I was a kid, you could basically tell how rich people were by their clothes. Okay, and you know, I, I, I occasionally say that TK Maxx is, you know, and and, and actually ASOS and you know everybody everybody has a real go at fast fashion but let me tell you compared to basically your clothes telling everybody how rich you were fast yes. fashion's great because everybody mm. with a bit of disposable income a bit of creativity and a bit of effort if they want to can look pretty good okay right. you know trust me okay you know i mean yeah. uh, okay when i when i was at school in 19 my my estate primary school in about 1969 70 okay uh, the poorest kids had really ill fitting clothes because they were handed down from you know they were second hand handed down from older brothers and they actually stank a bit right i mean I'm, you know i'm saying this just because no you know nobody your age realises this and so in many ways over over the time frame i'm choosing you know, you you've got to say that actually consumer capitalism's done exactly the job it sh- it's supposed to do, which is get people more and more opportunities to do worthwhile things at a lower cost, or if they right. want to, a higher cost. You know, I mean, some people just you know like to spend more on certain mm. things. But that's fine too. But but the property market has, has has effectively destroyed all of the progress, and so I kept saying to these you know people, look. When you talk about flexible working, you're always talking about, you know, will my stuff be 5% less productive? And my argument is, look, if your consumers have 10% more disposable income, maybe that's the more important thing and you should be supporting this. Because if you look at it in the wider context, anything that frees people up from the depredations of their landlord and transport for London um, is basically good news for you guys
0: would you then with 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 that in mind would you then argue that at times we look at the squeeze that the consumers facing because of things like a recession like um like inflation in in a as a almost in isolation to what the bigger picture could actually tell us about the about the customer i
1: i, I mean right, okay rising prices affect very different people very differently and if you're mm. you know you know, I mean, South Africa is pretty rich by African standards, OK? But even so, there will be a lot of people in South Africa who don't have much discretionary income. One of the things I think you've seen is that it hasn't been, this time in the UK at least, it hasn't been accompanied by high unemployment. Quite the opposite, actually. Yes. OK, that's one good bit of news. <clears throat> Generally, in the UK, that even if you, someone does lose their job, the double-income family... Uh, tends to actually, you know, uh, provide a certain cushion. But the third cushion... Now, bear in mind here, Okay, I'm not talking about the poorest, let's say, 25% of people, Okay, Maybe even 30% of people. But for other people, there was already quite a lot of discretionary spending. Um, You know, quite a lot of people can effectively um, have elements of consumer expenditure... Uh, where you can basically do less of one thing and more of another, the other thing being cheaper, so effective basic substitution, and you see it all the time. By the way, if you if you look at what people do in the supermarket, uh, you can actually people people will go into a supermarket. This is in perfectly normal times, and if something's on offer, they buy more of it. Okay, and um, what so, you know. One of the good news- one of the good news things is this isn 't quite the 1930s in that a significant enough part of the population can just go you know put it put it this way, okay, you know one foregone cruise pays for quite a lot of pizza you know if, if you like, yeah okay, so people do have wiggle room um and I, again i'd caveat that very strongly with i 'm not talking about. Um, but 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 as a result, you know, you get these very strange things where whenever you get a recession, certain sectors do disproportionately well. Yes. And that's people because people trade down from one thing to something else. Uh, it was famously called in the 2008 financial crisis. It was famously identified as the lipstick effect. Which is people couldn't afford you know expensive clothes okay and they couldn't maybe they couldn't afford a meal out but people still like a treat so what people would do is they go and buy one expensive branded lipstick instead um, and so it you know it, it, it's I mean undoubtedly okay in aggregate yep okay expenditure goes down but for any individual player in the market the effects can be actually incredibly complicated because hmm. you have people dropping out of the market and you know, you know people dropping in. Yeah. You know, so if you're McDonald's, you get people who don't who go there half as often. But you also get people if you like trading down from pizza. So um, so you know it's it it it's very there's a great phrase of Mark Ritson's which is the average is the enemy of the marketer. And so it's very very mistaken, I think to say there's this kind of average consumer who's like right in the middle of everything and we'll look at the average consumer and we'll make that the story for all consumers. Right. Because it's a a much more complex system than that, particularly now.
0: Hmm. In your book, Alchemy, you argue that intangible factors like um, stories and emotions can be profound on our perceptions and behavior as human beings. How can companies harness the power of these intangible factors in their marketing and product development?
1: Uh, I think the first lesson is you've just got to accept that kind of magic is possible. Engineering, economics, and economics is really an artificial branch of engineering, okay, (sighs) tend to assume proportionality. And when you assume proportionality, you assume trade-offs. OK, in order to charge more for this, we have to spend more on that. OK. Now, the point I make about marketing is that every now and then you can produce something in, with marketing, which is really, I suppose, exploiting a psychological effect uh, or a psychological asymmetry of perception, which is pretty much akin to magic. OK. You know, you can invent a word, you can describe something differently, and the emotional response can be totally different. I'll give you an example of this. Okay, it's just a silly story, but it's I I quite often like to talk to small businesses, and it's the example I give. Okay, which is let's imagine you're running a dry cleaning shop. Okay, now the one question is what time do we close? Um, The second question, which I think is just as important, is how do we close? okay and the the example i always give is um and funnily enough a very large uh retail chain in the uk used to officially close at five but they really closed at five past five because they said if someone was running two minutes late for the store and found someone locking the door they get really upset and annoyed okay so you're closing your dry cleaners one way is to Um, just lock the door and when someone comes and tries the door just wave them away and say sorry we're closed or you allow someone into the store and you say i'm sorry you can't collect your thing because we're closed we've just shut up the till now in that case which happened to me by the way in my local town about three years ago five years ago okay uh you the consumer does not interpret that information as oh i see the store was closed i must remember to go more earlier next time they see it as an insult okay you know now the alternative is to lock the door um leave the door marked open and between 455 and, and 505 Stand right next to the door. If anybody tries the door, they'll find it locked, but you make a really big show of unlocking the door and saying, we were closed, actually, but if you need to come in, why did not you come in now? They'll perceive that as a massive piece of flattery. Now, in the former case, there was a dry cleaner which did that to me in in, in my local... I won't name them. I don't don't think (laughs) they're disproportionate, I I I haven't used that dry cleaner for six years or seven years ever since because it just annoyed me so much. I basically went, well, F you then. Because, you know, I'd only missed the damn thing by one minute. The guy was still in the shop. It just really pissed me off, because it meant I had to, you know, make an entirely separate trip for the sake of one minute of his time. And uh, and so the point about psychology and the point about creativity is that creative people, the reason creative people are annoying, okay, right, (laughs) is that they don't have a sense of proportion. They get obsessed about trivial things like, you know, punctuation and, you know, certain phrasings and the size of the logo. And they, you know, they don't seem to care about the things which are really important. In a way, creative people are like that because they're right to be like that. Because when you're dealing with a complex system, complex systems don't have a psychology and human behavior being an obvious example. They don't, they don't have a sense of proportion either. They have butterfly effects all over the place where, you know, a tiny change in phrasing. Oh, let me give you a beautiful example, which I was sharing with a I was sharing with a Dorchester collection hotel group, but I think it's perfect. And it's from a restaurant in, I think, Saint-Emilion in France. And I've never been able to find a photograph of it, but it's beautiful, OK? Now, this place is something like a bit of a Michelin, one star, you know, gaffe. It's French, so it's probably a bit up itself. Um, but it does, you know, it does really, really good food and it wants to create this kind of posh, you know, urban, uh, sophisticated atmosphere, not unreasonably, okay? And they don't want people using mobile phones at the table. Now, what do you do, okay? Now, 99.99% of people would put up a sign saying, please turn off your mobile phone or mobile phone use is discouraged or whatever. Yes. Well, if you're paying, you know, I don't know, 100 euros for a meal, it's a bit annoying to be bossed around like that, right? You know. Here's what they did, which I think is absolutely beautiful, Okay, As you walked into the restaurant, there was a notice which was ostensibly targeted at people leaving the restaurant. And it simply... But you couldn't help but see it. And it said, please remember to turn your phone back on when leaving the restaurant. Now, it's implying there a social norm that people at our sophisticated restaurant turn off our mobile phones because who wouldn't? You know, I mean, this is a sophisticated place, okay? Mm, So it's implying that it would be slightly a bit of a social gaffe to have your phone ring during the meal and that all our customers voluntarily turn off their phones and you probably should join them. OK, but it's positioned as a helpful reminder, not as an annoying rest- instruction. And that's what I mean about, you know, that everywhere, everywhere you have a consumer interaction, whether it's in advertising or in customer service or experience, there's the opportunity for that kind of just astonishing magic. Uh, you know, in other words, you, if you get people if A is better than B. OK, right. Ninety nine point nine percent of people try and improve B. The creative person says, "If we get people to look at A and focus on A, they won't notice B at all. So you don't have to improve it." Okay. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. You
1: know, and so, so, tell that's exactly what magicians use. It, it's it's called misdirection. It's not really misdirection. It's just that the human brain will always notice something at the expense of something else. That's how magicians do sleight of hand card tricks. Uh, I've got a friend who's who's a kind of brilliant amateur magician. And he said, you know, I can he said I can vape anywhere. I can vape on planes. I can vape in restaurants because I just know the magician's tricks of getting nobody to notice that I'm vaping. I don't know how you do it. You wave one hand around (laughs) while you're doing it. And everybody's looking at your hand. And so nobody notices that you're actually having a quick toke. Um, But advertising can do that. It simply says get people to focus on the positive. They'll Mm. worry less about the negative to a point where it doesn't even matter. Yes. Now, obviously, there are, not every problem can be solved like that if you have in something the same which way, is fast, yeah, yeah. but dangerous. That isn't satisfactory, OK? If, if the negative is actually bad. But if the negative is a psychological... We were talking about this, actually, a beautiful one. I was talking to someone who runs an accident and emergency department in a major hospital in London. And one of the interesting things is, you know, people really hate the weight. But one of the most successful tricks is that after people have been waiting for half an hour, you get someone to see them and say, well, based on your symptoms, can you come and wait in this room over here? Now, the very fact they're moving from the one room to the other room feels like progress. And the likelihood that those people will lose their temper or feel insulted or ignored massively is reduced, even though in reality, all that's happened is you just move them from one place to another place. EY, um, I think it's EY, is it KPMG, I think it might be EY in London, has this brilliant system with its reception where you come into the, the grand floor reception. And they say, Ah oh, yes, we've we've been expecting you, Mr. Sutherland. <laughs> okay. Um, why don't you come upstairs and wait in our lounge reception upstairs? And so you go up flight of stairs. And there's slightly nicer sofas and there's an espresso machine and a few newspapers. Okay. Now when I went to visit someone there, they were actually half an hour late. Now, if I'd been left waiting at the first port of call, the downstairs reception, after about twenty five minutes I would have been I would have been slightly oh <laughs> fuck sake you know this is a bit rude you know I'm sitting here you know they're kind of dispatch riders coming in and you know I'm being treated like you know I mean treated you know, and, you know I, I I would think this is a. I I would officially say this is a waste of time and I would think that's why I was annoyed in fact deep down my kind of inner lizard brain would be feeling offended OK, mm-hmm. because yeah. I wasn't being treated with the, the respect, blah, blah, blah. Now, once you're ushered upstairs into this parallel reception upstairs with an espresso machine, um, they were half an hour late. I was, I was actually slightly annoyed they turned <laughs> up because I was so happy chilling up there. OK, I you know, I didn't see it as a waste of my time, but I didn't feel offended because they'd flattered me enough by saying, come and help yourself to an espresso capsule. You know, they could have been an hour late. They could have been an hour late. I wouldn't have minded. You know it's so clever and actually you know we can genuinely we can use this to actually improve human happiness now i just got to be really clear it doesn't work if the negative you're distracting people from is what you might call an actual physical negative right if you're yes. distracting people from the fact that the bloody thing is poisonous okay then okay that's that's a problem okay If the negative is purely an emotional negative to begin with, well, what harm is done by making sure that people don't experience it? It's a bit like the placebo effect in medicine. Well, if the placebo effect actually helps you get better, what's the problem, right? We shouldn't be going, oh no, there's the placebo effect. We should be going, how do we maximize the placebo effect?
0: This episode is sponsored by the digitally led customer experience agency, Roger Wilco. For all your customer experience, digital marketing, and web development needs, go to rogerwilco.co.za or rogerwilco.co.uk. You can also download the South African CX report and the Township CX report directly from their website, free of charge. Don't we all love something free every now and again, especially with insights, right? This is true, this is true. Something else that uh, that has been um, doing the rounds a little bit in various conversations is that sometimes, as agencies and creative teams mature, the more experienced minds in those teams tend to become out of touch with popular contemporary culture while the younger members of those very teams are not experienced enough and not in leadership positions, but they are in touch with contemporary culture. Yeah, I, Have I, you got I, I, some I'm... thoughts? Sure. That's a
1: really, <laughs> it's a really good observation. Actually, you need both, because you could equally argue that, I mean, when, I, when I was in my 20s, okay, I couldn't really get my head around why anybody would have a pension. So when I had to do pension advertising, it's worth noting that the old tend to be much richer. And so the advertising focus on young consumers is... You know, there's some logic to it, which is they are future consumers of tomorrow and so on. And also, uh, younger consumers probably are more malleable in terms of their behavior than older people who are more set in their ways. So there are reasons for targeting the young disproportionately. But yes, uh, you need both and you need the humility and honesty in both to say, I, the 25-year-old, will listen to the 48-year-old when he explains why pensions are a good thing. Because when I was 25, if I've got 100 quid left over at the end of the month, I'm going to spend that on having fun. You know, the idea that I'm going to actually put it into some tedious financial pot so that in 40 years' time it might be of some value to me struck me as absolutely ridiculous, right? I mean, you know, I couldn't understand. Now I'm 57, you know, it's something I you know i'm quite grateful i actually made at least some partial effort and so it and i i need to have the humility there are certain areas you know like you know <laughs> you know when you're 57 and that's really bloody old in an ad agency i mean one of the problems with that agencies is there aren't enough people above the age of 40 in many cases mm. um but you're right, you're right about the, you know, the grip of contemporary culture, yeah, okay. You, you lose that because musically your tastes have tended to calcify as you get a bit older. There's a reason for that, by the way, which is as you get older, um, you have more experience to draw on uh, in deciding what to do, but you also have less future life left remaining to you to benefit from experimentation. Yeah. So there are two reasons why young people are highly open and experimental is they have less... They need to develop the experience to determine their likes. So they've got to try 20 different kinds of music, OK, um, And because they don't yet know what they like. And also there's a big, big payoff if they discover a form of music they really like, which is they've got, you know, maybe, let's hope, 60 years of remaining lifetime in which to enjoy it. Whereas... In my case, I've listened to a lot of music, I tend to know what I like, and I've only got, you know, I don't know, 20 years left uh, to listen to anything new in any case. And so, but equally, I think it requires mutual humility and and uh, and curiosity, which is, okay, you tell me about this stuff that I don't know about. I mean, w- one, one tragic area, which is hugely important, by the way, is gaming, okay, uh, in the sense that I, I was a gamer, massive gamer, uh, right up until the time I suppose I was kind of about 25. And y- once you've got a full time job and you have, you know, and you have limited free time, being a good gamer is difficult. Weirdly, there are groups of older people who become gamers in retirement because they now have the time to kill. Gaming mm. is very good value for money in terms of cost per entertainment hour. You know, a yes. game might cost £80, but you might get 800 hours of pleasure out of it, so that's 10 pence per hour, OK? It's cheap fun, OK, even though it looks expensive per, you know... It, one one of the things I always get really cross about is when, you know, posh people go, "Oh, these people claim to be poor, but look, they've all got expensive televisions. Well, that's because television as a form of entertainment per hour is unbelievably good value for money, right? You know. Mm, yeah. You know, okay, is. you go out for a pizza, it's sixty pounds for two hours for your family. You sit at home watching TV, it's about fifteen pence. It's not surprising people who don't have a lot of discretionary money choose to spend a lot of that money on a good television. Um And gaming always worries me because, uh, you know, it's something which simply, you know, once you have kids and a whole lot of responsibilities, you know, for a large swathe of the population, it's a major part of their cultural, um, uh, you know, cultural reference points. And, you know, my daughter, who's a bit of a gamer, will suddenly, you know, will refer to different genres of game or blah, 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 blah. And... I realize this is tragically, and I try, I try to make nothing a closed book to me, but in this case, this really is a closed book. And then, by the time I get back into gaming, I'll have retired, so my any chance to exert influence will have gone. Uh, that I mean, that's definitely one. That's a case where. I mean, I found it comical, didn't you, that people were looking at, say, the metaverse, okay. <laughs> when I looked at this vision of the Metaverse, which was like clunky avatars with no legs, sort of making ill-coordinated kind of gestures to each other, I thought, compared to any kind of multiplayer online game, yeah I mean, the graphics were just inf- just infantile, I mean, just ridiculous. Mm.
0: And also not very accessible to, to many people as well, right? Again, it was one of those kinds of things. You've written about the limitations of data-driven decision-making and you've spoken about it a bit earlier when you started the conversations. And in your writing, you debate that sometimes irrational factors like gut instincts and intuition can be more effective. Can you share an example or two of when of when you relied on intuition and it paid off in your work?
1: Okay funny enough, there was a story I always tell about how when I, first of all when i when I relied on creativity um which is about four years ago the the worst thing that anybody who does public speaking can imagine happens okay and this is when I was grateful that i i I was creative and understood that the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea so I'm about to go on stage now before you go on stage, if you're a public speaker, about fifty percent of people, maybe more, have to go and have a piss. About five minutes before they go on stage. No, I mean, God knows what the kind of uh, psychological or actually, it's kind of endocrinological. End. I it, suppose it's probably psychoendocrinology as the field, or something like that. Okay, God knows what the cause is, but you're just not comfortable going up on stage unless you've had a pee in the last five to ten minutes. Yeah. You gotta have a pee. Okay, go out to the wash basins. And turn on the taps, and it's one of these wash basins where if you turn on the taps full blast, water goes straight Spring into your clips. groin. Okay, yes. and I'm wearing light coloured <laughs> trousers, and I've got this massive soaking patch on the front of yeah. my trousers. Yes. and you've just got to go on stage, and you go, "This is going to be hopeless because no one will listen to a word I mm. said because they're all going fuck something." <laughs> yeah, no, another okay. speaker
0: referred referred to that as the. Beige Pants Syndrome.
1: The be be yeah. By the way, that's probably something you're more frightened of that than of not knowing what to say or getting a difficult question. The beige pants syndrome, right? Yeah. Now, it so happened, I don't know what the hell I would have done in Johannesburg, okay? It so happened I was in London, and I tried very briefly using the dryer. There was absolutely no hope. And I went outside just going, I'll just have to explain this away because there's nothing I can do. And then suddenly outside, it started to rain really heavily. So I just went out and stood in the rain <laughs> <laughs> so i was completely soaked right okay so admittedly admittedly people were wondering why is this guy just fallen into a swimming <laughs> okay. but it was better less distracting and less embarrassing than just having moisture on the front of your pants on your beige True. pants, yes. and nowhere else so that you know I, what i love is there's always this opportunity for as i said the opposite of a good idea is another good idea and that's an example of it um you asked when I'm, uh, an example of where I'd used, that's where I'd used creativity. You wanted to know where I'd used um, intuition. Um, intuition, yeah. Uh, quite often, uh, there was a guy, chess player called Capablanca, I think, who didn't know how to do it, okay? Um, but he was always convinced there was some end game in chess and I probably got this hopelessly wrong, but it was like two knights and a bishop against a rook and a queen, or something. I can't remember. Okay. And it was always declared a draw in chess, but Capablanca thought it was actually a win. He just didn't know why, for one party. And sure enough, you know, years later, a computer proved that he was right, that actually it was 127 moves, but under these conditions, it was basically a win for the, you know, the two rooks and a knight, or whatever it was. Okay. And so sometimes it's just knowing there's some. A lot of the use of intuition is just knowing when an area is worth exploring further. It's what I call a smell. You know, someone says something and you go, well, you know, it sounds a bit totally random. And you go, hold on, there's something there. Why does something here chime? I'm going to play around with this apparently stupid idea for a bit longer mm. because it may have the makings of something. Because it's what I say is you've always got to climb. off Quite often, you've got to climb kind of Mount Silly to reach the bright, bright sunlit, you know, uplands that that lie beyond. And so, a case of intuition would be um, uh, just know knowing. Okay, when you come up with a line, or you, or or there's a problem, a behavioural problem, and quite a lot of the work I do in behavioural sciences, I know the vague patterns. And so, an example would be i suppose it's almost partly using humor as well I'll give, I'll give you the perfect example okay which is someone came to me and they had a um, they worked with a local fire brigade and when the local fire brigade weren't fighting fires uh they um uh they they um uh that they go around to i think it was housing projects particularly poorer housing projects in this area of the city, and they'd install smoke detectors in people's apartments for free. I think it's a big deal. It can save a life. And they said, we don't have much of a problem. We're firemen. We turn up. People are pleased to see us. We don't have much of a problem except for one thing. People are totally happy to let us install one smoke detector, but really we need to install three. OK. And my instinctive thing there is possibly... To, uh, uh, what i'm doing instinctively here is i'm looking for patterns in behavioral science and the and the, the way you use instinct is you you think of something which isn't actually the same but it rhymes right and there's an example where um a famous example which we'd done which is that uh, if you if you if you say maximum four per customer with like fries for a dollar in kfc australia okay far more people buy four anchoring effect etc and i kind of went in and thought and i thought there's a rhyming pattern here with something i've heard before in behavioral science you know um, something similar which is i went that's because they think that there should only be one okay I said, the trick is, now I don't know how well this worked, but they did adopt it, and I think they still use it, so let's assume it worked quite well, optimistically. I said, the trick is, if you think that three is necessary, two to three, turn up with six, okay? And you say, you know, well, we, we, we you know, you're actually allocated a maximum of six smoke detectors, but looking at your apartment, we think you can make do with three. I now see. it's possible then that the person might drive you to two. There's nowhere they'll go from an anchor point of six to one, okay? Right. They'll probably accept three, and some of them might say, "Are you sure I don't need a fourth one in the kitchen, child's bedroom, whatever it may be?" Okay. But I said, "I, I, I said turn up with you know, it, I said, turn up with a huge number." And so, quite a lot of it is you instinctively feel that there's a solution somewhere there um, by effectively changing you know, ch- changing the frame of comparison, if you like, from one is normal to six is normal, but three is an acceptable compromise. And so um, the only way I can say that is that the way we tend to deploy behavioural ideas is you have a toolkit and you have uh, a lot of case studies which give you kind of patterns and you look you look for the rhyme and there's, there's another case i was thinking of which is uh um i mean other things i think genuinely by the way i, I think we ought to be honest about this other things just emerged from the unconscious david Ogilvy famously dreamt the whole pepperidge farm uh commercial uh it kind of came to him in a dream um uh th- it, um quite a lot of really good ideas. You have no idea where they came from. And the really important thing is that what makes creative people different is everybody else is trying to have a process which is sequential, okay? They're trying to pre-rationalize the solutions. And creative people accept, okay, that actually um, the best work doesn't work that way. It, It does sometimes. I mean, you know, I mean, occasionally I've had cases where you produce a very good bit of work and it's entirely a piece of sequential logic, OK? Um, prob- um, uh, there, generally, that's because a good creative leap or a good insight has happened somewhere else in the process, upstream. Yes, yes, yes. OK, someone else has had a good idea before you've had to work on it, OK? And, you know, sometimes the big creative idea is a planning idea, OK? OK? A great example is, is uh, in the UK. Sainsburys had these financial targets of, you know, growing the business by X billion over Y years, and there was a young planner at Abbott Mead Vickers who said, if you divide that financial growth target by the number of shopper visits, that's equivalent to every single shopper spending an additional one pound twenty-five every time they visit the store. And so they did a campaign which was try something new today. In other words, when you make spaghetti bolognese, try buying some I'm guessing here, I'm not I'm not really a chef. Okay, try you know, try buying some herbs to mix in. Okay? Yes. And that's yes. your extra quid. Um so <clears throat> but but everybody else wants to get there sequentially, and the creative person um basically knows that actually the way it actually works is you get five steps forward and then you retrace so actually the way it works is the best ideas arrive as a kind of flash of inspiration and then you can post-rationalize them and most people go i can't do that because post-rationalization is cheating and creative people go no i'll do that every time because post-rationalization there, the are 20, there are twenty there are twenty good ideas you can post-rationalise for every good idea you can pre-rationalise. And that, that's by the way my point. The solution space, once you free yourself from the need to actually arrive at a solution through logical steps. Once you free yourself from that constraint, the world becomes messier, but the solution space becomes twenty times bigger.
0: Right. Right. So 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 it's not it's not always logic. And see well, okay, that I mean, we should. The, the, if you look at hugely successful products, Dyson, I always make this, Dyson,
1: Red Bull, Nespresso, um, uh, you know, uh, actually hugely successful businesses and brands. There was no pre-existing demand for those things. There was right. no evidence in the marketplace whatsoever that people wanted a seven hundred dollar vacuum cleaner, that they wanted a very expensive, weird-tasting drink. Evidence of the demand for that zero, okay? Evidence that people would pay seventy pence for a cup of coffee they made themselves at home, none. Because the really successful products actually don't appeal at first, but that once you've experienced them, they completely change your whole um, frame of reference. They change your whole um, uh, preferences. They change your utility yeah. for.
0: I mean, how they you create. Sort of, they right? they okay. almost create that desire where it wasn't before.
1: Okay, the classic example is mobile phones. Most people didn't want them. Once you've had a mobile phone, you can't go back. There's no way back. Funnily enough, very interesting, because I'm doing a bit of work um, uh, with Audi in South Africa about electrification of cars in South Africa. One thing that makes me optimistic about electric cars is the really important thing that a lot of people are reluctant and a lot of people are holding back and a lot of people are waiting. But of the people who buy an electric car, very, very few people seem to go back to petrol afterwards.
0: So one of the things I think, and one of the things about South Africa and electric cars is that at the moment we've got record high um, power outages as well. So I'm wondering how, how I think, you know, behavioural science will, 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 will overcome that bit of challenge or at least that perception.
1: In the medium to long term, of course, you've got an absolute abundance of sunshine... Yes. And you spend a fortune on importing oil. Is that right? Because you don't. Yes. You, you, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the importation of oil and uh, 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 is a major, major drain on South Africa's kind of balance of payments. And you do, you know, at least, you know, theoretically have the potential for. A lo- I mean, I remember being in Joburg, basically in Joburg for the whole winter. You never get a cloud in the sky, do you?
0: I mean, yeah, 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 mostly not, mostly not.
1: No. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I arrived in, in Johannesburg in what must have been sort of July or August. And it was a beautiful, absolutely beautiful sunny day. As apparently the whole of June, July, August, September is in Johannesburg, OK? And the people met me from Ogilvy in South Africa and said, I'm sorry you had to come during such terrible weather. And I laughed because in Britain, OK, if it's sunny, it's a nice day. Doesn't matter what the temperature is, okay, yes. but it was about two degrees, three degrees. there'd been frost overnight. And what they meant by terrible weather was it was cold. Yeah, And yeah. that was a That's glorious true. case of complete relativity because no British person would look out of the window, see a blue sky, and go, it's a horrible day. if it's if the sun is shining, it's a nice day, end of, you know. OK, the only extreme might be massive extremes of heat and massive extremes of cold. But basically, you know, it could be minus six and it's a beautiful day if the sun is shining. Yes. And so, so you know, potentially that transition is going to be painful. But it's, it, in South Africa's case, disproportionately, it could be a really good transition to make because you actually have reliable sources of solar energy, which is something we don't. We have, you know, the potential for it, but it ain't reliable.
0: Mm-hmm. Rory, in closing, um, how can creative teams, strategy teams and, and people who sort of work within the agency space where there isn't behavioral um, science teams, how can they merge some of their thinking and some of what they do with some, um, I think, insight from behavioral science? Um. I think the thing is at the very beginning. I think we make a mistake
1: as ad agencies in that I think very very soon after a client has not only not necessarily briefed you but made you aware of a problem to be solved. I think you should have a loose multidisciplinary experiment, sorry, period, of a couple of days, where you really really explore the problem and define the question and define the behaviour that's required. So what we tend to do is we have process, creativity, process. And actually, I think we need creativity, process, creativity, process. Okay? And that's that basically is of what Einstein said, which is if you gave me an hour to solve an important problem, I'd spend 55 minutes defining what the question was and five minutes then coming up with the answer. And I think, I think that's where behavioural science plus strategy plus data, actually okay, they can they can actually meld together into something really valuable because if you can come up with the right question, uh, the, uh, as, as, you know, Einstein, I think we'll have to take his word for it, the answer can be surprisingly easy and surprisingly quick. And if you define, so the first thing is always define a brief in behavioral terms because then you're being media neutral. If you define a brief in attitudinal terms, uh, you you aren't looking at the whole kind of toolbox, the whole creative toolbox. Yes. You're, you're going, okay, how do we change what people think? That's not the point. The point is to change what people do. And and changing what people do may not involve communication at all. It may involve design. It may involve, you know, incentives. It could involve any manner of things. But there's that 48 hours of what I call going through checklists, going, have we explored this possibility? Does this data really mean what we think it means? does anybody have any alternative explanations and i think that's what i that's what i'd love to see in the ad industry is as i said creative creative logic creative logic you know we need sequential process in execution uh, we also need it probably in the run up to uh, you know defining and narrowing down a, a creative challenge but i think We're failing to explore the available solution space by not having a creative, and and I mean a creative process up front, which involves but is not confined to people from the creative department.
0: Really great. Um, Thank you very much for your time, Rory. Um, This was an amazing conversation and I'm sure that uh, our listeners will benefit a lot from it. Thanks for making the time. Thank you for listening to The Lead Creative. Did you get one insight that's worth sharing from this episode? Please share it with your network or your friends. Pop me some of your ideas and innovative finds on Twitter, on at Mongezi. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find me on mongezi.com.